Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior associate pastor, Dr. John Light. We're in the book of Numbers. If you're visiting with us, this is a, not a typical book to preach through, and we're doing that through various highlights of the book and trying to get a sense of the importance of this, of this book and the themes. And we're in Numbers chapter 17. Hear the Word of God. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one for each father's house, from all their chiefs according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. Write each man's name on his staff, and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the, the people of Israel, and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels that you may make an end of their grumblings against me lest they die. Thus did Moses as the Lord commanded him, so he did. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish, we are undone, we are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Every year at about this time, I tend to think that our crepe myrtle bush has died. That's because I found over the years that it's always the last of all the bushes and trees in our yard to show any sign of life in the spring. So if you walk by our house at any point at this time of year and see me examining what looks like a dead bush that's been trimmed back a lot, you'll know what I'm doing. But what you will never see me doing is examining our walking sticks in the garage for signs of life. At least, I won't be looking for life. I might be examining them for other reasons to still see if they're cracked or anything, but they're long dead. They've been sanded. They've been wood-burned with various names on them and designs and decorations, and they've been varnished and well-worn from hiking. 
We don't expect a walking stick to burst forth with life and growth, but obviously this is exactly what we find in this chapter. God gives a miracle to teach the Israelites, and it teaches us as well. So we want to look at uh, two main points, the meaning of this, of Aaron's staff that blossomed, and then the significance of this or the fulfillment of it. And then we want to look at two applications of this. We want to look at the meaning of this then, first of all. And to do that, we have to get some context here. If you haven't been with us, last week we saw in chapter 16 this massive rebellion against the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and essentially a rebellion against God and That's what's being referred to when God talks about to get rid of grumbling. And it's a dramatic passage. We saw that uh, the representative leaders, probably for all the tribes, 250 with them, the fire went out from the Lord and destroyed them, and Korah and his household and others. uh, The earth opened up and swallowed them. Really terrifying miracles of judgment from God. And it's in that context After all of that, and it's a pretty detailed account of more than what I've just said, but after all of that comes this chapter about this budding staff of Aaron. And one of the main things being taught here is reinforcing what we saw in chapter 16, that Aaron and his descendants are the chosen priesthood, the designated and appointed priesthood ordained by God for Israel at that time. And it also contradicts and makes clear that what this rebellious group had said in chapter 16, verse 3, they had said, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. What had they been saying? They'd been saying, everyone is holy. Uh, We should all be able to approach the tabernacle to approach God. We shouldn't need to have Aaron. Uh, We shouldn't need any priests in that way, or we should all be able to be priests. There are different theories about whether Korah thought to supplant Aaron and be the high priest instead. But um, the events of chapter 16, and now this clear, miraculous budding of Aaron's staff. And by the way, when uh, God tells them to do this, he mentions budding, that the staff will bud. But when it's brought out, it's not only budded, uh, it's blossomed, and it's produced almonds overnight. This amazing miracle of the staff. And so it was contradicting this idea that Aaron doesn't have to be our high priest, that his family and his descendants are are not going to be priests. It was a contradiction of that, and thus it was a, a correction of this attack on God's appointed way of approaching him. This is very applicable to our day and age. Are human beings simply to approach God in whatever way they think is a good way to approach God. 
You know, there are all kinds of religions, there are all kinds of philosophies. Religion isn't really in in the United States now, but spiritualism, spirituality is in. And, you know, there might be all kinds of ways that you can be spiritual and doesn't have anything to do with Christianity or any religion, just being spiritual. And what Numbers chapter 17 teaches is this profound need that sinful human beings had, have to approach God according to the means that he declares and that we need a mediator. We'll see more about that. But it's interesting here when we think about the meaning uh, of this. In verse 5 and in verse 10, both times it says, it repeats that God says that he will make to cease uh, from him the grumblings of the people of Israel. And again in, in verse 10, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me lest they die. Wouldn't you have thought that the fire that went out from the Lord and consumed 250 liters and the ground opening up, wouldn't you think that that would have brought an end to grumbling? Well, it didn't. Somehow it's like anthrax, you know, can go through fire and being frozen and everything. Somehow the spirit of grumbling survived that. Shows you how powerful that rebellious spirit of grumbling is. It somehow lived on. And we see that even though it brought an end to grumbling to a degree. It wasn't a complete end to that because in chapter 20 at the waters of Meribah where Moses and Aaron are told they're not going to enter the land because Moses strikes the rock twice and uh, disobeys the Lord. There we have the people wanting to go back to Egypt again and all of this. They're still grumbling of sorts. But finally, the fulfillment is going to come And we're going to see that in our second point. And that's going to be through Christ. But why is grumbling a sin worthy of death? death? That they may make an end of their grumblings against me, verse 10, lest they die. I think that these two chapters in Numbers show us something of why this is so important. Because rebellion expressed in grumbling, assaults God's glory. It's the opposite of what we memorize from Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so, grumbling against God is the opposite of that. It's certainly not being satisfied in God and enjoying God, and it's not glorifying to God. One person has written, when we grumble against the order that God has set in place, we are robbing God of the praise and glory that is his due. So grumbling is a very serious thing of this kind. Well, what about the significance or the fulfillment of all of this? And I alluded to the fact that the budding and the sprouting almond staff points ahead to Christ. And it's interesting, where else do we find 
uh, a picture of a tree with bud and blossom and fruit, all the stages of the growth of a tree at once. Well, in Exodus 25, verses 31 to 40, we find the description of the lampstand. The lampstand, uh, which was a stylized tree in the engravings on it, this lampstand that was to give light. And the, the engravings on it there in Exodus 25 are these things of the leaf and the almond and the fruit and so forth. It's a picture of the whole cycle of life under God's blessing. And biblical scholars assert that the lampstand possibly pictures the tree of life And its function in the tabernacle was, in a sense, to shine God's favor forward onto the table with the uh, 12 loaves of showbread, the 12 loaves uh, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So in other words, that, in a sense, tree of the lampstand symbolized God's favor and blessing resting on the tribes of Israel. The blooming almond staff of Aaron was a symbol then. It was the symbol that the Lord would fulfill his promise of great blessing for the people of Israel through the priesthood that he's designated through Aaron. It was a sign of blessing, but the people had rebelled against it. And here God gives this striking sign to show them that. Aaron and his descendants would be the chosen channel of God's blessing and life for the people of God. And that is all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It's interesting then, why did the people receive this miraculous symbol as a token of death instead of a promise of blessing. Why does the chapter end with verses 12 and 13? And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? Why did they respond this way? It's probably the reason they responded this way is because um, in their rebellion and their grumbling in chapter 16, they had believed what the ringleaders of the, of, the, of the rebellion had said. Everyone's holy. Everyone can come near. We're all the same. We don't need a priesthood. We don't need a mediator. We can approach God the way we want to. And so now they are in essence repudiating this watchword and what what had been said and what they had believed, and they are doing it with terror and dread, and they rightly feared approaching God, but they had gone to the opposite extreme. We don't want anything to do with this almost. They didn't seem to receive any hope and encouragement in the God-given means or way of approaching God, which was at that time all that he had told them about the priesthood of Aaron, about the tabernacle and how it was to work and everything. And so until the coming of Christ for hundreds of years, this was the means of approaching God. 
And if you know your Old Testament and its relationship to to the New Testament, you know that all of this foreshadowed the coming of Christ. All of it pointed ahead. It's so rich in its detail of foreshadowing the coming of Christ, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the ceremony. Everything was finally fulfilled in what the author of Hebrews calls the new and living way in Jesus Christ. And the book of Hebrews is the most detailed exposition of how Jesus fulfills all of these Old Testament foreshadowings in the ceremonies, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices. And so the question comes back, how is God then going to bring an end to rebellion and grumbling in his people. And this is where I think it is such a blessing to think about what Jesus Christ has done. In Romans chapter 3, we read that it's not by the law that we're saved. The law declares us guilty before God. The law cannot save us. The law does not give us the will and the power to perfectly obey. The law does not impart life. The law is good and holy But we need to be saved through the work of Jesus Christ. We are not transformed and given new life by keeping the law, by trying to be moral, by being religious, by carrying out ceremonies, by trying to do good works. No, it is only by the life-giving power of Jesus Christ who is like this living staff of Aaron that buds and blossoms and gives fruit overnight as Jesus Christ gives people new hearts and new lives by his work on the cross, and he remakes us more and more by his indwelling Holy Spirit. This is, this is the life that is offered through the gospel, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. Just think, I was thinking about this and thinking about the gospel of John. John chapter 6, Jesus is the bread of life. John chapter 7, in the midst of the feast, Jesus stands up and says, uh, whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John chapter 14, that famous verse Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John chapter 15, that extended metaphor and analogy, Jesus is the vine. His people are the branches. We are connected to the life of the vine. And if not, we won't bear any fruit. We'll be dead. So we're called to abide in the vine, abide in Christ. Scriptures are full of teaching about this fulfillment of Aaron's rod. Dr. Walker mentioned Romans 8 this this morning, and I was thinking about this this week of Romans 8, verses 10 and 11, where again it talks about this life we have in Christ. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who indwells you. This wonderful chapter of life in the Spirit. The Israelites of that day could not conceive of the glory and the greatness of the fulfilling of this budding Aaron staff It is Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit dwelling in us that enables us to less and less rebel and grumble against God. 
Or think of 2 Corinthians 4. That's another verse that came to my mind about the treasure we have of Jesus Christ in jars of clay. And Paul goes on to write as he talks about that. He says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And he's talking about that in the context of the trials and tribulations of the ministry that he's been through. In verse, six, he's, in verse 8, he said, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he talks about, in a sense, the death of Jesus being part of our lives on this earth. Uh, in the afflictions that we go through. And, and he says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. God is using all of these to proclaim his name. It's a wonderful text. And then you think of Philippians chapter 2. I was reminded of that when I was studying Numbers 17 because in Philippians 2, 14, it's one of the clear New Testament verses about grumbling It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And it goes on. But what's the context of that exhortation to do all things without grumbling? It's that beautiful beginning to Philippians chapter 2 where Paul starts with our union with Christ if, you, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, beautiful phrases describing the Christian's union with Christ, who is our life. And then he talks about uh, not having selfish ambition, about humility in the body of Christ. And right in there, in the middle of it all, is this beautiful, we might say, hymn to Christ, this beautiful description of the gospel about Christ humbling himself and then going all the way to the cross and being exalted. This beautiful description and summation of Christ's uh, work on the cross. And therefore, verse 12 says, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who's at work within you. So the context of this exhortation to not to grumble in the Christian life is in the context of understanding what the cross of Jesus Christ did. Life, resurrection life out of death. It's powerful, and that brings us to our two applications. The first is this. How do I look at approaching God? How do I look at believing in God or not believing in God. Some of you may be wrestling with this. Maybe you've been raised in the church. You're thinking, do I believe in God? Do I believe in Jesus Christ? And this whole issue of salvation. These days, there is very much the same spirit as there were in the days of Numbers 17, as I spoke about earlier, of those who would just say, and the watchword these days would probably be, there are many ways to God. There are lots of ways to God. Let everybody find their own way. I'm sure God accepts them all. But Numbers chapter 16 and 17 is telling us otherwise. And the whole Bible tells us otherwise. The whole Bible tells us this is God's appointed means. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the anointed, the appointed Savior 
of the world. And the terrifying judgments in Numbers 16 and the encouraging miracle of the promise of blessing in number 17 should remind us of what Jesus came to do, that He came to die for sinners on the cross, that He came to bear that terrifying, the most terrifying judgment of God, to bear hell for sinners, and then to break the bonds of death and hell by rising victoriously as we've just celebrated on Easter. The glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that He's been vindicated and demonstrates that He is the only way to God. What a more powerful vindication and miracle than even the budding and the blossoming and the bearing fruit of Aaron's staff. Jesus rose from the dead. And so we are saved not by means of some moralistic effort or some spiritual guru that tells us how to be holy in and of ourselves, not by religious ceremonies, but by the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, by believing in His name, by giving Him our lives, by turning from our sin, by simply trusting in the rock of ages that was cleft for us. But the second word of application is this, what is the spirit in which I live my daily life? How much grumbling is there in our daily lives? It's a convicting question, isn't it? And so, and I'm speaking here to Christians, to most of us who have believed in Jesus Christ in this room. And even though we have new life in Christ, the outworking of that transformation will not be completed until glory. So in a sense, number 17 looked ahead to the New Testament, the coming of Christ, but even then... There wasn't a complete eradication of grumbling from God's people. That's going to be when Jesus returns. But then, how do we live more with an attitude of trust and contentment in Christ and less with an attitude of grumbling? And that can be about the little grumbles from the little things that are every day or the massive sufferings of life. I think that the Old Testament scholar Ian Duguid in his commentary states it accurately when he writes this, grumbling and rebellion can only be overcome as we contemplate the cross. Did you hear that? Grumbling and rebellion can be only overcome as we contemplate the cross. When we think, this is what he says, when we think about the way the Lord dealt with his own son in order to make us holy, will we murmur and rebel against His ways in our lives that have the same design. In other words, the Father out of His great love sent forth the Son. The Son out of His great love for us and obedience to the Father went and came to the cross. Out of that, the purposes of God in our salvation. Will we murmur and rebel against God's ways in our lives that have the same design. In other words, God is practically making us holy through the work of the Spirit, through the work of Christ, but by the circumstances of our lives, which are sometimes very hard. Do good goes on. If God did not spare His own Son, but freely gave Him up so that we could receive blessing and life, how will He not, along with Him, give us everything we need? That's a paraphrase of Romans 8, 
32. When we see that the Lord's purpose for us is blessing, remember the Lord's purpose for the Israelites in number 17 was really blessing. When we see that the Lord's purpose for us is blessing, a purpose that is assured in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, why then do we still doubt His goodness? The Lord will accomplish His purpose to sanctify us one way or another. Some of those ways are intensely painful, to be sure. Yet as we stand before the cross, are we really able to say to the Father, No, Lord, this is too painful. I cannot bear this. It is too much. And then do good quotes from Samuel Rutherford's, one of his letters, the weightiest end of the cross of Christ that is laid upon you lieth upon your strong Savior. What a sentence. The weightiest end of the cross of Christ that is laid upon you in the crosses of our lives lieth upon your strong Savior. You see what Ian Duguid is saying. He's saying it's only as we look at the cross of Christ, as we behold the sacrifice of Christ, the love of Christ for us, the beauty of Christ, as only as we look at that by faith in the Word of God that we are enabled to trust God's purposes for us and His providence in our lives, in the circumstances of our lives. It's as we look at the cross that our attitude of rebellious grumbling is transformed to more of a holy lament before God, I would say, and as we find anew and in deeper ways that Jesus is our very life, that He alone sustains us. That's how we get rid of grumbling, by looking at the cross, by looking at Jesus Christ. Dane Ortland, in his devotional book on the Psalms, recounts the experience of the hymn writer Anne Steele 300 years ago, uh, just brief circumstances of her, her life, which was a very hard life. Her mother died when she was three. She was injured early in life and remained an invalid all her life. And when she was 21, her fiancé drowned in a river the day before their wedding day. And here are two verses of one of Anne Steele's hymns that Dane Ortland quotes, Dear refuge of my weary soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief, for thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face, and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. O oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. And notice that is a holy complaint. That's a lament she's writing in her hymn. And yet she talks about, she closes with that idea of access to breathe her sorrow before the Lord. It's a beautiful hymn. Aaron's budding staff points ultimately to the living access we have to God through Christ. Whether we are 
uh, breathing out to God our lament, like Anne Steele was, or whether we are uh, breathing out to God our rejoicing because of just all the good gifts He's given us and all He's done for us in Christ, whether it's a good day or a bad day, we might say. Because of Jesus and because of His cross and resurrection, and because He ever lives to make intercession for us, we can fully trust and continue to fully trust in Him. Let us pray. Father, thank You that we can glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. May we do that in the words of many of the hymns that we've sung, in the words of the Bible, which we know so well. Lord, continue Your work of transformation in our lives that we may live close to the cross, all to the glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.